Hello, hello out there. Our guest today is author, entomologist, ecologist, and conservationist, University at Delaware professor Douglas Tallamy, author of Nature's Best Hope, Bringing Nature Home and the Living Landscape, Designing for Beauty and Biodiversity in the Home Garden. Today, we're talking about lawns, keystone plants, insects, and how easily we can address ecosystem dysfunction and species endangerment and climate change, creating an ecological house for nature to thrive in our yards with Homegrown National Park, a science-based grassroots call to action. Thank you for being with us, Doug. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. So 78% of our land is privately owned and we have wonderful conservation areas in this country, but private ownership of land creates holes in conservation. And you've educated me so much. I'm so thrilled to have you with us. So we've lost 45% of our insects on the planet. Can you talk about how crucial insects are to our birds and to our whole ecosystem? Well, I'll just tell you what E.O. Wilson told us uh, way back in 1987, and that was that insects are the little things that run the world. And if we lost our insects, we would lose 90% of our flowering plants. And if we lost 90% of our flowering plants, the food webs that support our our animals would all collapse. So we would lose our amphibians and reptiles and birds and mammals. They would all disappear. The earth would rot because we would have lost insect decomposers that that, uh, rapidly turn over nutrients. And all we have is bacteria and fungi. So big changes. And humans wouldn't survive any of those drastic changes. Oh, wow. And to think how much we've been pesticiding uh, these guys out of existence. We have so many endangered bees and butterflies and pollinators, birds, all kind, you know, it, our whole web of life is is crashing. But there is hope. And you have lots of firsthand experience renovating your garden. Why is native landscaping important for caterpillars, butterflies, and moths? And why are specialized caterpillars so important to sustain our gardens? Well, first of all, let's talk about what plants do. And they do lots of things, but a very important job is to capture energy from the sun and With photosynthesis, they turn it into food. And that's the food that supports all the animal life on terrestrial earth. So pretty important. But if that food stays in the plant, you still don't have any animals. So the plant has to share it. And that means animals have to eat plants. Most vertebrates don't eat plants directly. Most vertebrates eat invertebrates, things like insects that ate those plants. And it turns out that it's it's not just any insect. Caterpillars are transferring more energy from plants to other animals than any other type of, of plant eater. So you can, you can count the number of caterpillars in your local ecosystem <clears throat> and know how much energy is being transferred from those plants. And that's where the native plant connection comes in. Um, non-native plants don't support a lot of caterpillars. And that's because you know plants don't want to be eaten. They want to capture that energy from the sun and, and turn it into food and use that food themselves. So they protect their tissues with nasty tasting chemicals, secondary metabolic compounds that make those those uh, tissues either bitter or downright toxic. So insects can't eat plants unless they come up with the adaptations that get around those, those defenses. They have specialized enzymes and, and behavioral adaptations and life history adaptations that minimize their exposure to those, those compounds. And once all those adaptations are in place, then they can eat the plant. The monarch butterfly is a perfect example. Milkweeds are toxic plants. Very few things can eat milkweeds and nothing can eat milkweeds unless it's got the adaptations to get around the 
the milky latex sap and the cardiac glycosides that are in milkweeds. So monarchs have those adaptations and, and that means they've got access to, to all that nutrition. But once, once they've developed those adaptations, they're locked into eating milkweeds. So if you take the milkweeds out of your yard and put hostas in there or, or anything else, you're not going to make any monarch butterflies. They, they're locked into to the milkweeds. And if you take the milkweeds away, the monarch has two choices. It goes find milkweed someplace else or it starves to death. Those are the, the choices we've given it. That's called host plant specialization. And it turns out 90% of the insects that eat plants are host plant specialists. So when we, when we liberally landscape our plants with plants from, from other continents, which we have done, um, none of those plants are very good at supporting our, our uh, host plant specialists because they didn't, they didn't evolve with those, those plants. And then when those same plants, those ornamentals that we've, we've brought into the country escape and become invasive species like buckthorn and burning bush and barberry and oriental bittersweet and all the things that have escaped, then they're, they're degrading the food web outside of our gardens as well. Not just, not just at home because they're spreading their, you know, invasive species look kind of like an ecological cancer. It just keeps growing and spreading. And that's the problem. Um, what we want to do is put the natives that support the food web back so that we can have all of those caterpillars so that we can transfer energy and then have all the birds that eat those caterpillars and so on. We have native landscapes, which are beneficial. And then we have invasive that are toxic to our native insects. And then we have neutral plants. So folks can actually go to this website for Homegrown National Park to find out about the plants that are good to plant in their neighborhood. I'm really excited about Homegrown National Park. I would love for you to talk about this grassroots campaign. Well, it was a number of years ago that I, I got the idea. That, you know, we have a lot of lawn in this, this country more than 40 million acres at this point, which is the size of New England, by the way, dedicated to lawn, which is an ecological deadscape. So um, that's not the way to restore ecosystem function. So I had the idea, let's cut the area of lawn in half <clears throat> and replant it with the plants that support the food web. Well, if we did that in half the area that's in lawn, if we did that at home, we could create a new national park that'll be 20 million acres in size. And if you add up all our major national parks, even not national parks like at the Adirondacks and Yellowstone and, and Yosemite and Denali and the Grand Canyon and Great Smoky Mountains. At Apollos Parks, it's still less than 20 million acres, which means if we create this park at home, we call it Homegrown National Park, and it'll be the biggest park in the country. So what we're really talking about here is is getting the general public, everybody who, who has access to land, either as an owner or a volunteer to recognize that we need to create functional ecosystems. We need to, to coexist with nature right where we live and work and shop and play. The low-hanging fruit is to, to reduce the area of lawn. <clears throat> but, um, you know, if you're protecting a, a woodlot, that's part of homegrown national park. If you put a, an aster in a, a uh, flower pot on your balcony on the seventh floor of an apartment building, that can be part of homegrown national park. All those things are contributing energy to our pollinators and, and our caterpillars. So homegrown national park, it's got two goals. One is to actually convert these landscapes into functional ecosystems. But the other one is to, is to change the culture, to get people to recognize that 
the solution to our biodiversity crisis is a grassroots solution. It's one that everybody can and really should contribute to. We all need functional ecosystems. We depend on them. Everybody on the planet depends on them. So I think that means everybody has the responsibility to taking care of those ecosystems. Homegrown National Park is just a way to do that and to spread the message because most people don't know that. They don't know that, that, that that's something they need to do. Here in Cape Cod, we put a lot of value in invasive species and we we have a lot of European type, you know, plants and landscaping and there's just tons of lawn care and there's been a lot of dispute around how to care for the lawn and, and there's a movement to, to take better care and also to leave leaf litter to let the insects, you know, be on the ground and um, to, to mulch naturally and to use ground cover. And of course, native ground cover is the best. I thought it was very insightful that you said that lawn are considered a status symbol. And I think that people kind of need to look at that. Like, why do they really want the lawns? Because what I find is that the amount of um, time that people spend on their lawns is totally disproportionate to the to the huge investment that they've put into it in terms of <laughs> watering and lawn care and space. Yeah. Yeah. Lawn is very much a, a status symbol. It's a holdover from the class system from, from Europe. And in the old days, only rich people could have have lawns. And if you had one, it showed, you know, you are very wealthy. There were no lawnmowers. So you either owned a lot of sheep or you owned a lot of slaves. And it advertised the fact that you didn't have to use every square inch of your property to grow food because you were wealthy. Well, everybody wants to be wealthy. You want to advertise that. So uh, as soon as we invented lawnmowers, we said, well, everybody can everybody can have a lawn. And then, of course, uh, you know, marketing came into play. And the lawn care industry says, if it's not perfect, you're a communist and, and your neighbor's going to hate you. And, and of course, we bought into that. It's definitely part of our culture. So this is why I don't say get rid of your lawn. I say reduce it. The lawn you keep should still be manicured. We're going to walk on it. It's a perfect plant to walk on without killing it. It's a way to guide you through your landscape. We're just going to have less of it. So your your yard will still fit into the culture. It'll still be pretty. The area where you walk is never going to be the place where you're supporting a lot of biodiversity, but the areas you take out of lawn can support a lot of biodiversity. And it does not have to be wild and messy. Uh, You can have formal landscapes with, with native plants. So it's all possible to fit into the culture. We're just going to have less law. Yes. And I like this quote that you shared from Cherokee elder Stan Rushworth, who said that the settler mindset is I have rights. Indigenous mindset is I have obligations to stewardship. And I think that a lot of us feel kind of overwhelmed and helpless, like, oh, well, you know, what difference can I make planting a few plants or ripping a few up or um, having a water feature? But it really does make a huge difference. Can you talk about your own lawn? Well, it was part it was part of a farm that was broken up. Uh, into 10 acre lots and it was mowed for hay. Uh, that was the last thing that happened before we moved in. So it was kind of a blank slate, very, very few trees here. Then we moved in in the year 2000 and started putting plants back. And people say, oh, you know, it must have been really expensive. It wasn't expensive at all. You know, we, we planted lots of oaks, but I planted them as acorns free. You know, <laughs> those trees are now over 60 feet tall at this point. So, and it's been 22 years and well, that's a long time, but of course they started growing right away. Now, when I, when I garden, I garden with a chainsaw because I planted so many things I, we've lost our light in a lot of places. It's, you know, it's, it's a forest, which I, I want in places, not every place. I want a meadow too. And so uh, it's easier than people think. 
And when we learned how important caterpillars were to, to ecosystem function, that was about five years ago, I decided to make the effort to take a picture of every species of moth, not butterfly. I haven't gotten to the butterflies yet, but every species of moth that's making a living at our property. And I am up to 1,145 species that I have taken pictures of at our house. And I can guarantee there weren't 1,145 species when we, when we came here, it was just this, you know, blank slate. So that means it works. You put the plants back and the insects that run that ecosystem come back as well. And we can't wait till they're extinct. That's not going to work, but it's, that's one of the benefits of working with insects is that they do respond very quickly. Uh, and and help to restore ecosystem function. It's all about the plants. You just put put the plants back, particularly what I call keystone plants, the most powerful ones. So you know, native versus non-native is is uh, that's one thing. But all native plants aren't really productive either. So it turns out that just fourteen percent of our native plants are making ninety percent of that caterpillar food. And those are the ones I call keystone species. Uh, and we want a lot of them. And oaks are at the top of that list, particularly uh, in, in Cape Cod. You know, pines are on the list too, but oaks are at the top. So in nationwide, oaks support 952 species of, of caterpillars. Or something like a tulip tree, which is a good native plant, it only supports 21. So there are real differences among our native plants. And then, of course, things like crepe myrtle and burning bush, and they don't support anything. So... Plant choice matters is, is all I'm trying to say here. And we really can restore function if we choose the right plants. And of course, you have birds that are drawn to all of these. We have recorded 60 species of birds that have bred on our, our property. And they're eating right. all not the just <laughs> Not just flew through, but actually. Not just flew through. That's right. Yeah. That's, those yeah. are breeding, breeding pairs. Yeah. You had given some examples of different people's yards and how they changed them around and taken out half of the, the, the yard at uh, the lawn and put in native species. And one woman who was on a 10th of an acre and yeah. she designed a beautiful garden. So that's very, very but exciting. Pam, Pam Carlson so, in Chicago. She, she did a great job. So my last question was about, about light, because you mentioned that white versus yellow makes a difference. Well, of course, if insects are running the world, we don't want to run out of them. And we do have global insect decline. The causes have been, it's been re- called, you know, death by a thousand cuts, because there's so many different ways we're killing our insects. But light pollution at night is a major one. I mean, you look at the light map of, from the space shuttle, everything is lit up. And every one of those lights is killing insects all night long, which adds up. So it turns out that insects are not very attracted to yellow wavelengths. So if we took the white bulbs out of our, you know, our porch light and the light over the garage and our security lights and replace them with yellow lights and yellow LEDs, particular yellow LEDs are the the best. Not only could we save energy, but we could save an awful lot of insects. If you don't want to do that, put a motion sensor on your security light. So it only turns on when the bad man comes, which is not very often. That's harder actually than just switching out the bulb. So there are solutions to these things. I got an email this morning from somebody saying, uh, you know, we, wanted, we want to switch out streetlights in our township. What bulb should we use? That's where we want to go. We want to go big time. It's a very easy solution. 
So thank you so much for joining us. So folks can buy your books, your most recent books, uh, Nature's Best Hope and Bringing Nature Home and the Living Landscape Designing for Beauty and Biodiversity in the Home Garden. And folks can go to uh, homegrownnationalpark.org for information on this beautiful project. And we can actually map our own sustainable garden. Yeah, when you join Homegrown National Park, and it's free, by the way, your little piece of, of your county is going to light up uh, and you get to see who else is doing this. Uh-huh. The object is to light up the whole whole country. And also, yeah, can you talk about the holes in the corridors? Because I think that's important. Yeah. Well, you know, when people join Homegrown National Park and it lights up, you get to see where it's not lit up. Uh, the object is to get so many people participating. We have 135 million acres of residential landscape. So if we lit up all of that, we'd be able to see what we want to do is connect viable habitat. So those big real national parks or, or other areas that are preserved, we want to connect them with each other. Who's in between? It's you and me and where we live and work and farm and play. Uh, and if all those places are lit up, then outside of these protected areas, it's not no man's land anymore. And things can actually coexist and, and, and move back and forth. That's the goal. Yeah. And we can inspire each other too <laughs> and help yeah. each other out. Share seeds, exactly. share cuttings, you know, instead of being like, oh, I don't want this blueberry bush growing right here. We can be like, well, where on the property do I want this? You know, because birds bring all kinds of species that <laughs> that we need really for our ecosystems and for our eco-friendly backyards so we can share plants. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you so much, Douglas Talamy, for joining us today. You've been listening to Healing Wisdom at Outermost Radio. All of our shows are podcasts at WOMR.org. Also check out HealingWisdomRadioShow.com and contact me at Pandora at WOMR.org.